Power Chord Hour. It is my absolute pleasure tonight to be talking to musician, to writer, to punk rock legend, John Jughead Pearson. You know him from Screeching Weasel, even in Blackouts, many, many other bands. And uh, more recently, he's been doing a really, really good podcast called Jughead's Basement. And uh, I've been doing it a while, but I feel like like really uh, getting into it lately, which I've been enjoying. So, I mean, we're having John on. I want to talk the podcast talk music, all of that stuff. I mean, once again, a legend. There's a lot to talk about. So, John, man, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Like I, I told you a little bit earlier before we aired, I'm, just <laughs> at, I'm at my mom's right now. Usually I'm in front of a nice mic in my basement, but uh, I'm painting. I'm helping my mom uh, paint the house, so I'm over there now. Now, this will be so. uh, not, nothing wrong with that. You're working hard. Yeah. Doing good. I, I feel it, it makes me feel productive in these times of woe. Yeah, <laughs> that way about doing this show, it's like it's a uh, it's been kind of a way to like, you know, you're doing something like if you're stuck in the house or whatever. I mean, you're also yeah. in Chicago. I'm in western New York with just bad winters. And I'm sure, you know, it's like when you get some of those months where it's like it's too damn cold to do anything else. It's good to get creative. Like it's good to kind of stay in and do some of those things. You feel productive and it's like you, can, you really can't be outside anyways. It's so bitter. There's not much else to do anyway. Yeah, I think it was 10 degrees here today when I got up. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, I think we've been about we've been about there lately. So I mean, probably I mean to start off with the podcast again, you know, uh probably not the worst time to be doing it right now. And like I mentioned, I mean you've been doing it a while. I know I I for years have watched like on your YouTube page like you kind of go through like, you know, albums, do the rundowns even without people, just you do like the solo ones. Mm-hmm. So I mean like like take us back, like, and I, I guess I assume that was counted as Jughead's Basement. Like, what was the beginning of Jughead's Basement? What inspired you to kind of start doing all that, whether it be the interviews or the album rundowns and stuff? Like, what got you into doing all of that? Yeah, it started. Um, actually, I was just talking to Haley from the Unlovables about this. It started originally with uh, Vapid needing a place to for him to play with the Methadones and the Unlovables. They lost their venue, so. They, I, I offered up my basement because uh, Dan used to live there, so he knew about it. And um, I was like, well, if we're going to do that, we have to call, have a name for it. So I just called it Jughead's Basement. So it started off as a, an actual venue, which we still do occasionally. Oh, nice. And then, um, and then I had a flood in my basement Ooh. and uh, lost a bunch of records. Um, and that correlated with a friend of mine. Um, I did this online thing on Facebook where I just – said, I'll answer any questions completely honestly for the next hour. And I did it for a couple of nights, and it was really great. I would get kind of drunk on wine, and <laughs> and people would just ask me questions, and I'd be, like, as straightforward, as honest as possible in the moment. And it did really well. So this uh, friend of mine um, said, why don't you do a podcast, with it and we'll sponsor it. So I, that's how it started. At first, it was I wanted it to be live like that, like the Facebook thing. I wanted, And we tried for a couple episodes for me to – present written pieces by friends of mine that have written pieces like the repo man was the first one and then also do uh 
you know, interviews that were already pre, pre-recorded, but then I would do it live in the moment. But no one was listening at the time. No one was listening. So there'll be like two or three people. And it was a lot of work because me and, um, I can't remember, I can't remember why I can't remember his name right now. If it comes to me during the podcast, uh, I'll, I'll drop his name because, uh, uh, I, we're actually going to do a podcast about how it started, but, um, they were in another uh, state, so it was really difficult to line it all up, have me be live, and then them playing the pre-recorded stuff. So eventually, I, I just started doing it all pre-recorded. And no. it was uh, album dissections. What's like why I brought? I'm sorry. Why? Let me go back. Why I brought up the flood in my basement is the idea was when he approached me with the idea of doing a podcast. I said, "Well, I just lost all these records, so instead of replacing records, I want to replace memories." You know. So I was like, I'm going to uh, go to each one of these records and contact the people on that record and then interview them. Oh, I love and that's that. how the uh, album dissection started. Yeah. That is really neat. That is a really, I mean, it's it sucks that it had to come out of that, losing your record. <laughs> that's kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. But uh, it, came, it became so much more. And uh, I, I would still do them now if it, it just, they would take like months, months at a time. And for some reason at the time, I was making enough royalties with Weasel to not have to worry as much about spending 50 hours a week doing a podcast, you know? <laughs> oh, man, I mean, some of those album dissections you do, I mean, I think it was yesterday I was listening to the Operation Ivy one, and just knowing the amount of work it takes into, I mean, just a straight interview, just one interview, but you, like, yeah. talking to multiple people, weaving it in and out, like, truly producing it, like, truly, like, really, I'm sure putting hours and hours into it, that, uh, yeah, that had to take some time in the beginning doing yeah. like that. Well, the idea for me was, in the way I approach this with everything, I mean, we might talk about the mitochondriacs eventually, but everything to me is, whether it's music or theater, it's considered a, like an art project. So a record isn't just a record, uh, you know, podcast isn't just a podcast. It has to be some sort of uh, artistic pursuit for me, and that was the way to do it. Um, it just was hard to maintain, and then eventually I started doing them like every couple months and then quarterly then once a year and now the recent one with the uh smoking popes i have hours of interviews with all of them narrow it down yeah i mean yeah i can't i mean which i would love to hear and i'm sure many popes fans hours that's a lot I'm, i would love to hear what's in there but yeah to cut yeah. that down that takes hours. Yeah. and i don't know if people realize that like even if you were to get it down to like 90 minutes that would take you that could take like Five times that. Like, it may be a 90-minute piece in the end, but that took yeah, yeah. days and days to do. Yeah, I, 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 I was surprised. I, I'm going to get it out because I was surprised how um, genuine and uh, excited they were to do it. Like, uh, some of them came to my house for dinner and uh, separately because the, the idea of the podcast was I interview everyone separately so no one dominates, you know. Oh, I like that. Yeah, because that was always that's always the thing with the band is there's always someone like the spokesperson who always uh, dominates whether they want to or not it just happens. I also feel so, like like you also probably get everyone's account fairly too. Like instead of going butting in, no, this is how it was, this is how it was. It's kind of neat because you kind of probably get to get it unfiltered from each one yeah. how they react. Yeah, and then you I mean, when on my good ones, I would even let the contradictions sit in there, you know, because it kind of adds to the to the how about memory? Because to me, it's like, like I said, it's an art project again. So it's like an exploration and a memory. And that's why I really like doing old, old records that way, like records that were done quite a long time ago. That was on purpose. 
But when I transitioned into uh, like straightforward interviews, it made more sense to do interview people about the now, you know, what's going on right now. And I mean, I wanted and I wanted to bring that up because like I, I think I was telling you, like, I know you recently had Ryan from 500 Miles to Memphis on who's mm-hmm. I had I had him on the show. And once I saw he was on, I didn't realize you had been doing it more frequently, like constantly having guests on like. Really, it seems like it picked up steam. Cause again, like I'd watched them on and off throughout the years, like on YouTube. But like when, when it seems recently, but like when do, do you think you started taking it like, all right, we're going to start doing this more regularly, make it more interview heavy, you know, get, get more guests on, do it more of that way. Yeah. It wasn't really directly related to the pandemic, but it happened around the time it started. I came back from Japan and just didn't have uh, a lot going on at the time because I had been working there for six years, so I didn't have a lot going on. And uh, I just was fell out of contact with a lot of friends. And Jesse Michaels actually had been in Japan, and I didn't get to see him. So just to catch up, I was like, why don't we just do a free-form interview process and um, just see what happens? And it went really well, and it did really well, like you know, almost like 7,000 downloads right away. And... I was like, oh, this is a neat format where I, I do some studying, but then I kind of just throw it away once we – because that's how, like, improvisation works to me. You know, you, there's a reason you study structure and that theatrical movement. You know, you gain those skills, and then when you're on stage, you just throw it all away. So that was kind of the idea with these interviews is that I would study, like, intensely study someone and then just let it all go. I like – and I want to actually, like, like, further down, I do want to, like, talk about – improv and stuff with you but like i also kind of going along with that do you feel like because like watching watching the show what i really like is i feel like you almost purposely like figure out different avenues to take the interview like you may have a musician on or like an artist or something but i like that you go other places like it's not just like yeah you'll have the the topics that are obviously going to come up when you Mm -hmm. talk about that but i feel like you also purposely have these avenues that can kind of take you down somewhere like even like philosophical stuff or I mean getting into books or just different things that you may not hear from said person. Is that something that you're actively thinking about? Like when you're writing questions and thinking about the person that you're having on, like when you're doing that prep is, are you kind of thinking of where can I take this? Like that's not just the, you know, if I, if I have on a former member of a band I was in, it's not just about that band that we were. Yeah. No, I think I don't, I think I actively take to that place as a person. <laughs> I mean, the album dissections, I would have hours and I had to narrow it down. So it became about that record. But when the, when there isn't that restriction, I don't feel restricted at all. And uh, my studying uh, my studying goes fairly simple to what I can find on the Internet and asking people, you know, if people like I, I, I go to Master Eugenia a lot because he works with a lot of people that I end up putting on the podcast and I'll ask him, what do most people not ask this person? Or, you know, but but what I what I've been saying recently, which is the, the key, I think, to what I'm doing is I'm trying to understand what punk is without asking questions about punk. Oh, I like that. I really That's, like that. Yeah. So I think that's the key to it. I mean, of course, like you had said, I'm still going to ask the simple things like, you know, how did it start sometimes, you know, or, you know, or how did you get into music? You know, typical questions. But uh, I I predominantly try to focus on just that. Like, who is this person? That is is really interesting. And I mean, to your credit as well, like, I'm sure a lot of people like myself probably start watching your show because they know you from the music and everything. But like, 
there's tons of musicians who have podcasts out now. And I mean, you can only last so long on the merits of this is a musician that I like. Like you got to be kind of good because if it's just if it's 90 minutes of drivel, you're not, you know, are you really going to listen to that whole time? Like at some point you're going to drop off and go, okay, that's great. I'm just going to listen to his records. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I'll just stick to guitar playing. Like don't interview people. But with you, I like it because you really do. Like you can tell there's, which I mean, credit to you if that's just you naturally as a person, but you do, you like, you really take them in a different, in a different direction. I also like, I mean, cause you're also now I feel like just starting to have on guests who like, maybe you haven't met beforehand. Like it seemed like before, maybe it was more people you knew. Now you're having yeah. more guests that you never knew before. Like, is that kind of weirder for you going in? Like, you know, if you go interview someone that like, I think uh Jarrett from Bowling Pursuit, you had him on, I don't think you'd ever really talked to before. And a couple others versus yeah. a guy you've been in a van with for like 30 years. Like, I mean, is that, is that pretty different when you like go to approach that if you've never met the person? It is really different, and it's it's a case by case basis depending on how it goes. But I I do immediately do. My dad was a salesman, and I immediately take on that. What I learned from being a salesman is use someone's name a lot because I'm really bad at names. But in this podcast, I make sure to always say the person's name. I I I don't shock them, but I immediately just start talking, like, and then I'll say we're recording, like five or ten minutes into it and that's not on accident that's actually on purpose that's a good thing so people kind of know that that it's 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 a it's a conversation and it's already whatever you say is going to be the conversation you know (laughs) so it gives a it it, i i really like what it does to it um ultimately i I think i'm just i i I admit that i am i think i am good at it i I, because i think i'm just genuinely listening to these people I agree. I, I, again, like the genuine conversations, I think that's also why you can do like a 90 minute conversation. They just naturally like kind of flow. The more you interview people who you didn't know beforehand, like, is there a part of your interviewing skills and just talking to people that like, like, are you getting better at anything? Do you feel like doing that? Like, again, talking to people you didn't know beforehand versus people who you might have a repertoire with or, you know, a little like, do you feel like that's helped you at all? Or you've gained anything out of that? Like, do you see yourself better at it? Yeah, I'm definitely more confident in it. But uh, but like I learned with theater, you be careful with your confidence. Uh, you know, you should always have a little bit of humility and anxiety going in. Like when I did the uh, Vinnie Fiorello, I had nothing. I had and I purposely had nothing because I go, I should know this guy. We've been in the same scene for 30 years, but we've never met, never talked. So I'm going to write down nothing. <laughs> and so I, I think I had to do that to myself occasionally to to just understand that it's about once again it's about listening. Now, I, uh, and those are those are extreme examples. Like I said, normally I do some studying and I kind of know where I want to end it. But like I said, it, being an improviser, you 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 have to you know grasp the moment and realize it's going to take you somewhere you don't you don't expect. Was uh was like theater and improv? Did that come before music for you? Was that was all of that pre music? I was the beginnings of uh, theater was in high school, but as a professional career, they happened simultaneously. That's that's really neat. Like, do you? I want to ask. Like, I don't I don't know if you listen much to the Violent Femmes. Maybe you do because I kind of hear yeah. it. One of my favorite early bands. I actually got to see them at uh, Harper at a, at a community college way oh. back in eighty. Four, maybe three, somewhere I, in there. Odd. That had yeah, yeah. Music. Okay. Yeah, I met them. 
I got to talk to them too. It's really cool. I've had, I've had, and this is actually someone I would, I would actually recommend you have on your show because I think you two would have a lot in common. But Victor DiLorenzo, their original drummer, I've had him on the show a couple times now. And before he was in music, he did improv at, I believe it's called Milwaukee Theater X. I want to say it's called. Yeah, never heard of it. An improv company in uh, Milwaukee. But I mean, he's, he has said like he uses that improv and what he learned in theater and all of that through music, through perform, like with the Violet Femmes and stuff. He said like even, even their stage show, like everything he did went back to improv. Like things that he learned back then, he can apply it to everything he did later. And I mean, you kind of already said it a little, like maybe you use it in like even interviewing, but like, yeah, do you feel like you use what you've learned in improv and theater in your music and podcasts and like everything else you do? Like, is that something you can apply outside of just writing and acting? Yeah, I think I would, I would, I would say that I learned a lot of those things from, I would say both writing for theater and also for improvisation. One of the ones that I learned, which is a, uh, uh, technique out of uh, Improv Olympic, which is the uh, they have the thing called the Herald, uh, where basically it, there's re- there's a really strong structure to it, like two scenes of two, then one scene with the other person. You know, it's really structured, but what what comes out of it is never the same. But uh, what they do before that is that they get in the circle and then they just throw out words, you know, and then it's just it, it's inundating the brain with different thoughts and words. And then you just let them sit on you as it goes by. And what I've noticed during the, the, the good interviews is that I allow that technique to hang with me so that themes come back uh, organically through the interviews. Like there's always the shoe drop or the, uh, you know, the what like I did with uh, uh, Justin Insane. We start, we ended where we started and we were both like, wow, we did it. Full <laughs> <laughs> circle, baby. Yeah, and those type of things I definitely learned from uh, my early stages of writing for theater and improvisation. That it's listening and then recalling, recalling things that have happened. That's really, I mean, like I have zero background in that, but like after talking to Victor now, it's very interesting. Anyone like, and I start thinking about it when I knew I was talk to you, like because now it's really interesting because I never would have thought about before how you could apply that, but apparently like you can really apply what you learn in theater and, and improv. And I know I'm kind of yeah. all together, but how you can well, it, all that outside of it. Yeah. And it's good for reading people too. Cause often in improvisation, you have your ensemble group, but you're often thrown into a group with people you don't know. And you have to sort of uh, understand where they're coming from, what they're going to do. And then being also willing to just go wherever it goes, you know, that's why, you know, there's that say yes in improvisation, which doesn't mean you can't say no on stage. It just means even a no is a yes, you know. <laughs> Do you feel like that affected you at all either? Like, uh, you know, using just being being on stage, obviously you like being on stage. Did that did that morph into your live show at all when you started like playing with Weasel and stuff? Like, do you feel like maybe you were more comfortable on stage than the rest of them or maybe you lacked a little less stage fright from doing it, you know, before? And uh, like I said, they 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 started pretty early the same. I mean, out of high school. I mean, I did some theater in high school, but I wouldn't really call that learning how to be an actor. That's more like a bunch of kids and your you know friends on stage around. Um, so I don't know. I don't think I had the skills when I first started uh, with Weasel. I don't. I didn't even know how not to break ten strings in one show. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, get, I, get I, I had to learn everything. I learned everything uh, simultaneously, like I said, from theater and that, how to become like a performer. Um, they, you know, they, they definitely fed each other, but I wouldn't say one came before the other that way. I want to, I do want to jump into uh, music for a second too. Yeah. Like, Oh, can I just say one more thing? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. oh totally. That the, uh, also being in a band where I wasn't like Ben. So obviously wanted to be the external, you know, person. So, and, uh, it was, I have it in me to be a leader and also a follower. I have no difference for one or the other. So I didn't really have the pressure to be the, uh, performer as much on stage. I did. I just, so I would just have fun. And I, I didn't really think about it as performing because that's, that's was his job. Do you think it's good? Like, do you think that's helped you in bands kind of being that person where like you're kind of saying like you can keep it cool? It sounds like you don't have maybe like, like you don't have to be that person who's out in front. You can do there. It sounds like you probably know what you can do. You know what you're good at and you'll do it and kind of, I mean, stick to it or whatever. Like again, you're just not going to get cocky. Like, do you think that's helped you? your music career being that way, not trying to be the one who's like front and center all the time? Uh, I would like things. I think it also has probably hurt me because like, like a lot of people are saying this podcast is the first time they've really realized who I am or what I do. So there are some benefits to it too. Like the benefits to me are things that I learned from Columbia college, which is where I went to school. And uh, it's a very ensemble driven school because that's where uh, a lot of Sheldon Batinkin, who started Second City, was out of, uh, you know, was the head of the department there. So they were really into this idea of ensemble work. So Columbia is really about an ensemble. Like, you can have your talking heads. That's fine. You can have your moment. But you're really nothing without everyone around you working. So that's always been important to me. That always, that you know, that clashed a lot with Weasel because I really believed in that. And there's other sort of things being pulled in different directions. But I always wanted it to be more of an ensemble. That like a band is is everyone. It's not it's not like one person. It's yeah three or four. Yeah, I mean I I admit that sometimes someone has to take the front or or the audience immediately is gravitates towards the you know the singer the person you know front. So it's it's a given, but uh, it it really should work as a as a ensemble machine. I think. I, I would definitely agree with that. And I mean talking music. I mean we're talking podcasts. You are John Jughead, so we got to talk music, obviously, as well. <laughs> yeah. but, like songwriting, which was also funny because I remember when I messaged you to do this. I think at first I complimented your podcast, and after I'm like, I wonder if he knows I also like his music. Like I would think that's a given. Like I would <laughs> just think I like his podcast, and then it's like I, I would like for that not to be a given. But right now, at this point, I think it is a given. <laughs> you'll get you'll get there though. I even I was going to say earlier, like you were saying when you originally were going live, maybe originally you weren't getting the same turnout i feel like the more you're doing it regularly and stuff i feel like you should go back trying it live i think you're gonna get you're getting probably even now where there's eyes on it who people would definitely like i would definitely tune in for a live jug yeah it's it's funny because i don't i, I don't really consider myself a what a revolutionary but i at, a few times in my life i have actually thought of doing ideas that just weren't ready yet <laughs> like acoustic punk rock or you know the the live podcast. It just wasn't ready. And then Twitch came along, you know, and then by the time that came along, I just wasn't as interested in it. But you are right. I probably will try to go back into it when I can garner a little bit more of an audience. I think a consistent audience. And watch, you will, you will one day it will be, the people will, they'll know you from the podcast. They'll go, wait, you're also, you also play guitar. 
<laughs> you were in you were in what band? <laughs> yeah, I love that stuff because in, in Chicago, I'm mostly known as a, as an actor and uh, neo futures like theater person. So a lot of them are like, "Oh, you're in a band." <laughs> you run in diff- and this is why I also think it interests me with Victor DiLorenzo is like it sounds like you can run in different circles like it's not like your whole life has been punk rock like you, you you're very evenly like you do different things you know your life doesn't revolve all around like one thing like the yes. fact you can be known in one place for that and then another place I'm sure know you from like your music or something that you can you know you have these different outlets that people know you from I, that's really cool because not every not everybody has that. You know what I mean? A lot of people have. Yeah, I I think first and foremost, I mean, people would say this about me, and then eventually you have to pat your own ego and say, or or sometimes it's not a good thing, but that I am. A lot of my friends say I'm the most artist artist they know. <laughs> like, <laughs> everything I do, I mean, I can't even go to a movie without thinking about what I could do with it or what you know. You can't it's kind of uh, draining sometimes, but you can't turn like that creative part of your head off. Uh, I can't. It just doesn't go off. Like even in relationships, like my relationship now with my uh, girlfriend in Japan, I mean, just to fill our time since we're separate, we're like working on a children's book, and we do these, you know, journals every day where we have to draw pictures for each other. So I like, I even say to her, I go, "Why is everything I do have to have something to do with art?" <laughs> it's a, I, I love it, but it's a little bit draining sometimes not to just be able to sit down and relax. <laughs> you have to be productive at all times, too. Does that kind of go along with that, where it's just doing something productive at all times? Or does it have to be – is it more like there's those certain things that are fulfilling? You know what I mean? Like maybe it's not uh, – it, 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 I am – what I always used to call it is, and I still call it, is fear of contentment. So I wouldn't just say it's just being productive because I can have a moment where I just – sit and listen to a song or something or try to or hiking is one of my easiest ones where I just go and hike and Japan was amazing because I could just try to shut it off and just look um, but I am that fear of contentment does hit me hard like uh, oh I'm not doing anything I need to be doing something that that goes right into I mean songwriting are you someone who's constantly writing music? Like, is that something, or you, do you always have ideas in your head and you're always working on something? No, I'm not a Dr. Frank. <laughs> <laughs> are you a person then? Like, are you a person? Because then I feel like I feel like you'll get the people who are always writing, or you'll have those ones, you'll get bursts. Maybe you'll write a lot for a month or two and then yeah. not write again for three or four that's, months. That's kind of the way I am. I, uh, like, like, I, I think we sort of danced around like I have so many my hands have so many different kinds of artistic pursuits that I just have them bounce off each other. And it sometimes it comes out one, sometimes it comes out something else. But I did notice that I was I was telling another friend this the other day that when um, before I did the mitochondriacs, I hadn't been doing any music for a while. And I noticed when I was with uh, Nanako, my girlfriend, that I would start like singing street signs and like we would make up these stupid songs to help me remember Japanese and uh you know, even to say we love each other, I would turn it into some chika chika pikaboo, mudasaki shikiboo. That means I love you. I I, I like awesome. that is so cool. I was like, Oh, that I am driven to, to write because when I'm not, I I'm singing everything. So It sounds like you're almost like your mind pushes you, like if you don't do it, it will make you. It'll start like Yeah, yeah. I did I, I didn't know I didn't know about that myself about myself until until that happened like about a year ago. 
for writing writing in bands, like I guess specifically, like even in blackouts, will you is that something where you come up with fully realized ideas for songs or maybe Liz will and then it will you know, you'll bring it to one another, or do you more write with each other? Is it more of a group? Uh, it morphed over time. Once uh, Gov Conway got into the band, who used to be in uh, Gage and a bunch of other like really influential emo bands and stuff. Uh, once he got in the band, it slowly became a working relation. Uh, you know, working. Him and I would write most of the songs. Uh, Liz doesn't has no interest in it whatsoever, uh, but she will create her own harmonies and things like that, and we'll talk about songs. But in the beginning, it's probably one of the most intentional things I ever did. Like I knew the goal. I knew what I wanted to do with it. I knew the type of songs I wanted to do. And each record, I had to introduce myself to a new chord or a new something. And that would riff off of that. So even in Blackouts, it's very meticulously planned out in many ways. That's it, It's interesting, too, because when you jump to even in Blackouts, I mean, do you, your songwriting even in Blackouts to then what you, like, wrote in, like, Screeching Weasel, like, did I take it that changed a lot? Your your position in the band, how much you wrote, like yeah, that a whole new responsibility when you jumped even in blackouts. Oh yeah, I didn't really even all through Weasel. I did not consider myself a songwriter I, at all. Like barely even considered myself a guitarist. I just was a performer that knew that had a guitar and and Ben would you know show me songs and I would create solos occasionally you know, but I didn't really really know how to write a song until I started even a blackouts. My first song I think I ever really wrote was Missing Manifesto, which is the first song for even a blackouts, and that's... I mean, I wrote some stuff on the early Boogada album in the self-title, but I... You feel like uh, you really kind of started your songwriting with even in blackouts. You feel oh, like, def- definitely, 100%. Is there a... And I'm, I'm sure you feel connection with those Weasel songs, but like with even in blackouts, is there... Is there a different kind of connection with them because they're songs that like you wrote and are like probably more your baby in a lot of ways? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, Switching Weasel, I still consider my baby, and that's one of the big problems that why it still irks me, and I think about it a lot because it's it's my baby. But uh, even in Blackouts, is uh, I don't I I wouldn't say the better baby. My <laughs> <laughs> favorites with the kids. <laughs> my favorite baby. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love them both. I-, I dearly love them both. But when I'm sick and dying in my bed, I want the even a blackout baby by my side. <laughs> <laughs> is like is like screeching weasel a step kid, and like even in blackouts is like a blood child. Like yeah, but a step kid that I was there from the it's- beginning. Like I I nurtured it. I you know I taught it how to speak its first words. You <laughs> there from the get go. Maybe that was a cool. Maybe that was a Or calling, calling, uh, screeching weasel your stepchild. <laughs> but uh, um, but no, but yeah, yeah. Even in blackouts, obviously, I mean, everything about it is resonated from my life. All the songs, especially the first couple of records, are just they're just my songs coded. You know, my life coded in whatever I'm coding it in that album. You know, and good stuff too. Very, uh, very good records. I do want to talk about new music, and you did bring up the mitochondria, which I hate to admit, I only realized you did like about a week ago, and I'm re- oh. I'm really enjoying it. I don't know how I missed it. So I mean, <laughs> let's talk about that. How did how did that get going? I mean, there's some neat things about it I saw with like you know donating proceeds and stuff. So I mean, but yeah. before I get ahead of myself though, how uh you know how did that get started, 
and kind of all that good stuff. Who are you doing the band with as well? I came back fairly depressed from uh, Japan because I got kicked out because of visa. Uh, the, uh, my visa expired and, uh, you know, the pandemic was going on. So I couldn't be with Nanako at all. So I came home, was fairly depressed. And I had, I had been in contact with Eddie uh, from the Cobains for a while. Just uh, he was a really cool guy. He would just like give me records, like a band. You know, he loves collecting records. Not even his band. Just he would give me records and take me out to eat. And he would always, he was always a very helpful guy. And he just came to me one day and goes, "I think you need to just come into Marky's studio and write a song with us." And uh, and that's so I did. But uh, but I but the idea was that I wanted to write them spontaneously that day and then record them that night and then uh that would be it oh wow yeah and that's pretty much what i stuck to uh this this new song i'm working on is different because it's a 13 minute song <laughs> so but none of them we're going to record a tuesday and none of them know the music or anything so we're there's still a spontaneous <laughs> element to it but a 13 minute song they don't know yet yeah, well, there's, there's a guy that there's a guy that wanted to put out uh, our EP on cassette, and once again, I'm an artist, so I'm like, well, I can't just have it be that cassette. So why don't I just do a B side that's exactly the same length but one song, you know? <laughs> you truly do have the mind of an artist. You truly, it really must never turn. Which I I love the output. I mean, it's great that I yeah. can be like getting ready for the interview and go, wait a second, you have new music out? Like, it, I, you know, <laughs> the fan. Yeah, but, this, but the idea of this band was, it is my return to being comfortable doing Boogada period stuff because people aren't really doing it or doing it well now. So I did re, re-research my own records like Boogada <laughs> and the, the not Untitled and, you know, Angry Samoans. And then I tapped into this anger. I had some horrible stuff going on in my life so i tapped into that which i don't usually like to do i like to sort of analyze why i'm feeling that way and this one i was i allowed myself to be angry hurt and pretty raw so the songs come out pretty raw and and i work through feeling bad like i make fun of my friends in italy in one of those songs and like (laughs) and and i love them dearly i'm like i'm writing it going this is horrible (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I really just let go of the uh, – I, I never wrote in that style before, my own stuff. That was just uh, full of uh, vitriol. Just pure emotion, it sounds – just raw emotion, like unfiltered. Yeah, exactly, but yeah. always always with a sense of humor. I mean I, – I do hear I, – I do like uh, – you know, I, I can hear like some early like Weasel and stuff, and they're like, you're saying, going back and listening to it, like listening to your own work, do you have to listen to it like in a way, like almost remove yourself, like listen to it like it's someone else to get in that mindset? Or can you listen to it like, oh, that was me, you know, 30 years ago or something? You know what I mean? Like, can you listen to it well, objectively, like a, just as a listener, I guess? I think this is one of the reasons I'm probably considered a pure artist is that I immediately, even though I can emotionally feel things from what I put out there, I immediately go into the voyeur, even to my own music. So I mean, immediately, even when I recorded a record, like Ben would be done with it, and I would live with it for months because I loved the studio and I would listen to the how we separated everything and how you know I I but I would try to do it as a, a remove myself. So it's I think I've always done it. It's always I've always had to. That's nothing being, new to you. 
That wasn't like yeah, a, being writing my own stuff and and then producing it like in theater. I I had to be able to put on that uh, director mask, you know, or that you know a little bit of distance from it. That's interesting. And going back going back to mitochondria, I mean, obviously, I was going to ask you if there's like more plans to do stuff with them. Obviously, you're doing that 13 minute song. I mean, yeah. is this something you see continually? Like, is is this something that's going to keep going on? Do you think? Uh, we're discussing it right now. We're not sure because uh, the I I wanted everyone to have their other bands that were their more of their focus. But like like anything, uh, for some reason, people are really into this band, and we've gotten asked to do shows, and then now uh, immediately it's becoming trouble doing shows because everyone's in another band. So. Um, we're having a bad discussion Tuesday, but I don't, I don't know. I would like to continue going on, but it also could be just getting me through this period of what, whatever's going on. Yeah. I could, it, I mean, it seems going back. I mean, you had a, what'd you release? Like four things last year? I think on your band camp, there was like four, there was like a full length or no, an EP maybe. And then you no, had, it's all, they were all, they were all released originally as I, I wanted to re- release them as actual seven inches, but the way the market works now, you have to be oh. ready six or seven months ahead of time. And I wanted them to be more spontaneous, but I wanted them. They're all uh, opposite songs, you know, like love, hate, oh, and, yeah. uh, never, always, but sometimes. Um, so I wanted them to come out together. So we would record two at a time and I would release them digitally. And uh, like I said, the other idea was that the most every digital sale would uh, get donated. Uh, that doesn't count like shirts and like. Uh, actual cassettes or things like that, but any digital sales would get donated to uh, a different um, uh, international fund funding. You know, that's really cool. Who's I? Who's idea? Like, where'd that initially come from that you guys wanted to donate proceeds? Like that, that? was me. I felt uh, I've never been able to do it in my life because I live by the seat of my pants, you know, hand to mouth. So I haven't really felt the ability to. Uh, put as much into helping out the world as I could. So since it was in Marky's basement that we were recording, it was a little bit easier just to go, oh, I don't want money. Let's just donate it all, you know. So that's what we do. I'm actually going to start doing I just decided today I'm going to start doing that with my podcast, too, with the Patreon, too, donating part of that straight to. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's really, that's really, uh, that's really cool. I, was, I think in this, like like we were talking about how I don't talk about punk as much in the podcast, but get to it by not talking about it. Yeah. I kind of feel like that's what I'm doing with uh, donating money. I'm trying to, I don't know, heal the world as much as I can. <laughs> I like that. I like that. It's kind of old school back to when labels would do, you know, like they put out even like a comp or something like that. I think Asian Man Records had a few comps where like I think 15% or something went towards uh you know, different charities and stuff it's yeah, kind of, you yeah. know, in that vein. So it's very punk rock. Yeah. What's easier for me that way, because I, it really never touches my hand. So it's a lot easier to, you know, if I had like $20 in my hand, it's going to be a little harder for me to give it to someone else. You never see it digitally just, and somewhere in between Bandcamp and, and the, the charities did it somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if that, the digital thing makes it easy, just, it never sees my hands. I just, press that button to donate it, you know? <laughs> besides uh, besides working on mitochondriacs, I mean, any other uh, music lately? Have you been working on even in blackouts or even just, like, just songs in general that you don't know where they're going? Have you been writing? Um, even in blackouts, the next step in the progression, which made sense, because we all, the last three records we've 
built our own studio and recorded in our own homes and everyone works on everything. Like no one goes home after they do their drums or guitar. Everyone would just live together. Uh, the next step logically was that everyone would start writing. So we have like a email chain of songs that we've all proposed. Um, but I, everyone's living their lives right now. Yeah. No, that, that, uh, I mean, you're, you seem busy with everything else. And again, like mitochondriacs for people who haven't heard it, you know, there's, there's new jughead music right there. So definitely, yeah, yeah. definitely stuff to tide people over and hours of you talking too. That's the other great thing is hours and hours now <laughs> hear you talk, which is really fun, which is really oh, neat. Thank you. But I want to, you know, we were talking earlier about like how improv, how you use it, like, in whether it be music or, uh, you know, podcasting and stuff, but kind of going back to that, like whether, whether you're writing a book, whether you're writing interview questions, whether you're writing lyrics, whatever it is, do you feel like all of that, like, is in the same part of your brain? Like, are you using the same part of creativity no matter what you're doing? Or is there some kind of mindset that you have to kind of put yourself in depending what it is? You know what I mean? Like, if you're writing. Yeah, a- I know what you're saying. Cause that's uh, often a question I ask people as guests on my show. Um, I, I used to, when I started out, was a little bit more, uh, I wrote a play called Road in the River, and it was when I decided that I had to go from just spontaneously writing stuff, purely like stream of consciousness, that even though it did well, I wanted to be able to talk about my work better with an audience. So that led me to the idea that I had to be a little bit more intentional. Um, but there's, but all, all creativity in me is still a balance of those two. So I will allow my muse to all of a sudden start writing a song or all of a sudden write, writing a book or something. But then the intentional part has to kick in and go, is this realistic? Do we have time to do this? Is this what we need to be doing right now? So I would say all my projects are intentional, but they don't always start that way. That's interesting. That's really interesting. I mean, because, again, like you you doing so many different things. And I mean, obviously, like some people use their creativity on one thing. So it's very interesting to kind of, you know, pick yeah. up someone who you you kind of distribute it differently. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, they're all related. I mean, they're all coming from my brain and they're all coming from memories that were stored. there are overlapping. And I I call creativity like the the combination of two disparate ideas or pictures. You know, there's this, the brain is basically all these pictures and ideas. And then your little things synapses in between are connecting them you know and the creative brain just finds interesting ways of, of of making disparate things make sense in the world and that's kind of the key of it so i don't yeah i don't i i feel like all the projects are related uh, the last thing i want to say on that is that an intentional thing i do is when i'm working on a song i don't listen to music when i'm working on a book i don't read books i when i'm working on a play i don't read play, you know i don't I get away from the the topic or the genre that I'm in, involved in at that moment. Will you, uh, you know, going along with that, do you find yourself like, say, you're writing a play and you, you know, you kind of don't want to get in, whether maybe you don't want to get influenced by things like that, you just don't watch them. Will you find yourself getting influenced in other places? Like, will you then be getting maybe more influence from listening to music or you know, doing something like that that you then apply to what you're working? Yeah. Time. Yeah, I think they're all they're all related. And there's uh, I learned something. I did a show on this uh, uh, what do you say, nineteenth and early, late nineteenth and early twentieth century uh, artist uh, Marcel Duchamp that 
talked a lot about that he doesn't, uh, he did study art, but then eventually he just started reading science periodicals and philosophy, and that that actually ended up affecting his writing, his art more than studying art did. So I, I, I've basically taken that to live by. And, but I'll say, except for the mitochondriacs, because I don't want to contra- sound like I'm contradicting myself, I actually purposely went back into the book of the catalog to rip myself off. <laughs> so in that way, I had to. I had to borrow from the genre I was writing already. But yeah, in general, I don't do that. I was I was going to say earlier, like like when it comes to your creativity and kind of just that, whatever you want to call it, really, the thing that makes you want to create and do things, and, and obviously the thing that never turns off in your head, do, was is there a time you remember that turning on? You know what I mean? Like was there an age or even a specific maybe event that you remember that you just kind of, after that, you wanted to create, you wanted to do things? Or is that just kind of, has that been you forever? Have you always just kind of had that kind of artistic mind since you were like a child? Yeah, I think it's been me forever. But there was, once again, talking about this, turning something internal to external, there were a few moments where, like, a teacher would force me to do something or my mom forced me to juggle on stage at the church, you know, talent show that kind of, forced me to realize that I was an outwardly creative person that yeah and that if I was going to be that all this stuff was just going to sit in me and spoil and decay if I didn't show it to somebody uh I I I think people helped me through that my mom and a couple teachers in high school and stuff did that for me but I would say to answer your question that 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 creative instinct I think has been there since I was little I would make them imaginary friends and I wasn't even one of those that believed that they were real. I just loved the idea of making up things, you know. Improv. In a lot of ways, that's kind of improv, isn't it? You're kind of yeah. like on the spot. You're kind of like imagining yeah. what it would be. You have to make up that person in front of you. Yeah, like one of my favorites was when I was really little. I mixed a potion. I don't know. It was like whatever, flour and Windex and stuff. And I put it in a little bottle and I put it on a, a gate outside. And the next day... It had fallen, but it was all dry. There was nothing there. So I was like, I just invented invisible formula. (laughs) (laughs) And I knew that it just, you know, absolved, you know, dissolved into the ground. But my creative mind was going, ah, I did it. Don't you act though too? Like, don't you kind of need that? Like in, in your head, you may know that you're on a stage and it is theater, but don't you have to, in a, like convince yourself or some part of your mind that you. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not. I don't have another person's brain, so I don't know what it's like to have a less creative brain. But I feel that all brains are constantly in the like aware of themselves now, but also that what do they call it? Like that second consciousness that's aware of yourself being aware. Yeah. And it's and and that improvisation is a big. Is it deals with that a lot. And being on stage is like that, too. Like, I need to, you know, I need to stay in touch with these people because we're playing music together. But in order to do an interesting show and different every night, not fall into a pattern, I have to take chances and live in the moment. And it's it's always a balance of those two. That's really, that's really interesting. And again, again, something that uh, Victor talked about like that, like how I think people who have that, have that theater background, is really cool when you get into live music because you don't want the same show. It's not. It's not about 
a scripted show or the same kind of thing. It's something different. Every- oh, it drives me crazy, man. It drives me crazy. Like I, I talk to my friends who do like Broadway and stuff. Like how could you do that same show over and over? And then when I realize what they do is they're playing a same game, but different. Their skill is so good that they find the little teeny things different every night to make it interesting for them. Whereas me, I can't say the same thing on stage twice or not. Like, like Dr. Frank is a genius. Like, I, I toured with him, and on the first night, I was like, oh, that's so amazing. He just spontaneously says that. And then I learned that, oh, no, he's like a stand-up comedian. He nurtures it every night. And it's just basically the same thing, just twists it a little here and there to make it better. And I can't do that. I just, like, physically get ill trying to – repeating myself like that. So you're very much then, it sounds like, probably in anything you do – you probably like the first thought is the best, like your first initial idea. It's probably best to do it then. You don't want to overthink it. You don't want yeah. to do it 50 times. Right. But then like one of the themes of this podcast, probably because that's on my mind is you eventually need to turn that into an intentional thing where you, you know, or else it'll just be chaos all the time. You know, the brain is chaos. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great point. Cause if you don't, then it's just, you're going nowhere. Like, yeah, I'm, yeah. Probably. Like no, you need to structure it. You need to structure yourself in some way or another. You know, you have an identity that you're trying to create for yourself, you know, so you got to try to stick to some sort of plan. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for music coming in around the same time as, as theater, was guitar your first intro into music? Is guitar how you got into playing music or did you start on something else? I had I had a mandolin that I had first. So I would start, I, you know, toyed around with that for a while and never really got good at it. And then I just dropped it. And then, um, I really didn't get another guitar until, uh, we decided this, the form screeching weasel. So I had a flute, but never learned how to play it. Like I, I still like, I'll pick it up occasionally, but I'm not very good at it. So, uh, guitar and mandolin are probably my main instruments now. Something I, I want to talk to you about, too, I thought it was interesting. If I heard you correctly in your podcast, you were saying the one day or on one episode that when you took when you started playing guitar, like your family not to take formal lessons. I was the first one uh, that didn't have piano <laughs> lessons. <laughs> yeah. Like and then but like getting guitar and stuff, too, you didn't really take lessons for that either, did you like formal lessons? No, I had uh, my uh, mom hired my older brother's best friend to teach me and uh it sucked and then i, I quit after one day so well that he only wanted to teach me uh, uh santana songs <laughs> in which i don't hate santana it's just not what i was into <laughs> yeah that's not including how old were you uh eight or nine or something yeah, i could see an eight that might not be the way to get an eight-year-old into into playing yeah it. so then i dropped it for a long time like i said i never really uh got back into it until uh ben and i decided to form a band okay so that well then that's even more interesting because i was kind of going with with your style and how i feel like you know a, a lot of times people develop a style from that lack of formal like that lack of formal learning do you think that do you think there's parts of your playing and maybe i mean a lot of people obviously have used your sound. Like you are an influential guitar player. Like the sound that you have, whatever you think it might be, you think that's created out of the way that you kind of learned like that? Like you didn't have formal lessons. It sounds like you were learning as you went along in Weasel. Like, do you think that kind of formed your, you know what I mean? Your style? Yeah. I, 
I listen to the old records and I hear it more in my rhythm playing than in the lead playing. The lead playing, I was just trying to do what Judas Priest did and Iron Maiden did. And, you know, I just knew that C scale and uh, I just, um, but uh, going back, I did learn that I, I somehow picked up, because I hear people do like melodic solos and they're a little bit boring. Like they're they're hitting the right notes, but there's something that I think I instinctively had that would like, wiggle a note more or, you know, or hold one a little bit longer that I can't even, I don't even, I don't understand where it came from. It's, um, it's interesting you bring this up. And I think it's one of your strongest points as a guitar player is you, you will, you can do a lot of single notes, th- single note things, but you can't, if you just do that, a lot of times it sounds terrible. You do have to, there is a talent to that. And there is some skill to that where you can't, if not, you're just going down a scale basically. Like it's not, it doesn't sound yeah. At all like and that's when, when i hear a lot of when i hear a lot of pop punk that's the first thing i react to is like oh that's what they got but there was something that i was doing that i didn't even understand um but i but I, I think my my the thing that i'm most proud about me is the most dangerous to my body which is that i never really learned to play with my wrist so i play with my full arm oh wow so if you look at like most footage of me my arm is just like fast <laughs> <laughs> tempo so it's yeah, so it leads itself to actually, if you go, not that you want to go back and listen to all my records, but you can actually hear all of my strums because I'm hitting so hard. I'm, you know, you can always pick out my guitar amongst Vapids and Dan, you know, anyone else because I'm hitting so hard. Like you are, can hear the strokes. And, I mean, are there anything else? Like, is there anything else kind of going with that that like you feel like sticks out in your guitar playing? I know it's kind of it might be weird to dissect your own playing, but like, are there any other things you think you do that kind of make you like when you hear it, you know it's you? Like, are there a few things you think you do on guitar that kind of make you go, "Oh, that's that's Jughead playing"? Yeah, I think that's the only one. I mean, I I, I can really hear my you can hear my pick hitting the strings and. It, it's I play really hard. <laughs> I like guitars and uh, even in uh, even in blackouts, people were like, you know, Gub would do, the, you know, he would strum because he plays with his wrist, and and I'd go and I'd go like, because <laughs> 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 I had to, I had to go more distance because I'm going like this, where most people are just going. <laughs> Do you like, I guess that also goes like the action on your guitar. Do you like, like, do you like, uh. Oh, I destroy guitars. Really. I don't even, I don't even mean to, but I, I had one tour with Even Blackouts where I, and we didn't have money, but I went through four guitars. Oh my God. Yeah. Some of them, some of them are my own fault. <laughs> take the blame, you'll take the blame for a couple of them. Yeah. Like the one I dropped off the top of a, I know we were in a kid zone and I climbed on top of one of those like hamster trails, hamster trails, those huge human hamster trails. <laughs> and I dropped it. I dropped it. It's shattered to like a hundred pieces. Yeah. I can't see that ending good in any way. I don't think <laughs> good in any way. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I played so hard sometimes that I just like cracked the, the neck on guitars and stuff like that. Wow. Like good to like, for like gear and guitars, is that anything that you've ever like really cared much about? Or are you just someone who give me a guitar if it sounds good, I'm good? Or are you kind of picky with gear? I'm not picky with gear, except that I I hate um, I always forget the name of them because I try to put them on my head. But it's like the biggest punk 
pop punk guitar, the Ramones guitar, the oh more is it Morse right? I'm saying uh, Morse right. I hate I hate the Morse right. I hate it. <laughs> Anything else I'll play. I just hate the Morse right. Um, but I I I say I don't. I'm not a materialist because I I go through so many of them. But I do get emotionally attached. Like they become like human beings to me. So I. Me, me and my friend talk about like bikes like this. A bike is meant to ride and like we get a little upset with those pissed those people that have all the gear and they wash their bike every day. It's like, no, you're supposed to use it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't worry about cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's, I, I would use, I use guitars. I really do use them. I don't cherish them. I don't have like a, I never have more than one guitar at a time because they're either broken or, you know, or, I, you know, I've destroyed them. Nothing, nothing sacred. That, that's probably not the worst way to be. I think it's kind. Of, in a way, you sound kind. Of, or would you consider yourself a minimalist at all? It sounds like, like again, you kind of said it, but material possessions aren't like the biggest thing to you. It doesn't. Sound. Oh yeah, yeah. I, that came might be come from being, you know, having no money growing up and having to like. Um, I was in a midwestern suburb, but my income, my house income, was like poverty level. So. I just got really good at making what everyone else had naturally, you know, so I just don't, I have never really been attached to too many things at once. Someone who travels so much too, it's probably not a terrible thing. Probably no, not. No, it's not. No, I mean, I own a house. That's the one thing I own is uh, I have a house and I have, I have stuff in the house. So I do have stuff, but I'm not really attached to much of it really. I want to I want to go back to the beginning uh for a minute in the Chicago punk scene when uh Screeching Weasel started like paint us a quick picture like were there was the punk scene there a good one were there a lot of bands to play with were there venues to play at when you guys started or was it kind of a difficult thing when uh Screeching Weasel first started Um I don't know if I would call it difficult. We got gigs, but you know Ben was pretty good at knowing what was going on. He had maximum rock and roll you know, which had that scene report, so we knew what was going on. But there was a division, and it, it comes out in the music, and that, that's why a lot of suburban kids still, like, hey, suburbia is still so popular, because it was so true then. There, We were not, there was a division between the, like, city punks and suburban punks, and we had to, like, fight our way into the city, basically. And then we left as soon as we could. That, that was kind of our other thing, is that we didn't want to be, like, Love Naked Ray Gun, but even I even talked to Jeff Pizzotti about how they went on tour a couple of times, but they were really like a Chicago band. They stayed there, and me and Ben were like, we we want to be on the road. We want to, we'll just be a a wedding band if we just want to stay in Chicago, you know? <laughs> oh man! So um, I I don't I I have a weird relationship with the Chicago scene because I feel like we are and are not a part of it, and never really were because. We almost became more of that Berkeley scene, you know, because of Lookout and stuff like that. That makes sense. That's but, but we're a Midwestern fan. I mean, I'm a Midwestern boy. I mean, 100%. So For, like, like the scene back then, I mean, obviously it sounds like in the suburbs you had to go, if you wanted punk shows, you had to go to Chicago. Did there happen to be any other pockets of, like, a punk scene or a music scene, like like any weird ones, like in little pockets of Illinois? Or was it basically oh. wanted punk rock, you got to go to Chicago? Oh, no, no. We started our own, though. Dirty Nellies, which is where a lot of the bands that later became famous on Lookouts, you know, played there. Uh, Dirty Nellies was in Palatine. It was just an Irish pub that I think Ben's found and then handed it over to my friend Matt, who uh, then went to McGregor's and did people like Green Day and all these other bands. But uh, we did Dirty Nellies and the Crim Shrine would play there and uh, 
Operation Ivy played. They're only one of one one of two of what one of only two shows in Chicago. Wow, at our place. Um, so no, there were there were places in the suburbs. You just had to make it yourself. You know, basements and stuff like that. Was there? Uh, I mean, was there much? Uh, okay, the one thing about the city then was they were all over twenty-one, so it was kind of a oh, not all ages. It felt cool going into the city, but it was a little bit of a waste of time because no one we knew when we were eighteen could go. So, oh, that makes you could play because they have a little rule, you know, where you can play there, but you can't drink. You know, you have a special thing on you, but no one our age was was able to go to those shows. So, being being so close to. Uh to Wisconsin and Indiana, I mean, was were those places pretty early on that Screeching Weasel played, just kind of in proximity? Yeah, yeah, Green Bay, we were always, uh, you know, Green Bay, we were always, uh, you know, we immediately made friends with Master Genie in Lafayette, Indiana, you know, outside of, like, Bloomington, Indiana. So, yeah, it was all Midwestern, you know, gigs at first. But then we pretty quickly, you know, went to... Berkeley, and that opened up everything. You know, me and Ben drove straight across the country, just the two of us, and we flew out the other two guys uh, for one show. <laughs> so we we were pretty quick to get out of the Midwest. It's not so. I mean, because you were even talking about the scene. If you want to stay there, we'll be a wedding band. So it sounded like pretty early on, you guys knew you wanted to do more than just be like a local band. You kind of wanted to do a little more with it. Yeah, I think that was there. There was a, a drivenness. I mean, I analyze it a lot, and it's probably the one thing that still keeps me thinking about Ben as a human being and not as like an evil character. <laughs> Is that we were driven together, and we achieved a lot that we only could have done together, and uh, and that was it. Like we got, we were we were driven to get out. You know, literally drove. <laughs> to get out of our own city and to make something of ourselves. You know. Where are you at age-wise there, like like around that time? Beginning of- I think I was one – I took one year off of before I went to college. So I was 18, I think 18 or 19 young. when I started. Ben was one year younger than me, so he was a year younger. So wait a minute, what year was this, 86? I was 19. 19. And that that is young. I mean, props to you guys for having kind of that. I mean, pretty clear of a vision, pretty like early on. I mean, I'm, were you playing with a lot of bands in the beginning in that area who didn't have that foresight, who were very much didn't seem to know what they were doing outside of? Oh, just play some shows around here. Like, was were you finding other people in your area? Yeah, I won't I won't name the bands, but I won't name the bands. But we did have some conflicts with bands like in the suburbs that were upset because we were bringing in out-of-town bands and they were losing their like Tuesday night or whatever that they would play every week and we're like why do you want to play every week in the same same people same venue same songs yeah once again I think it's that thing in me that I it's hard to repeat myself like I just it didn't make any sense to be doing that no not at all <laughs> it, it <Yeah>. makes, <laughs> you won't go anywhere with that I mean that's how your scene will die if it's just the same like 30 people coming out every Tuesday yeah night. yeah yeah yeah, I mean, so, you got to get fresh blood in there. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I that was really started by Ben and his, uh, his you know, uh, early recognition of maximum rock and roll really enlivened that whole suburban scene quite a bit. With bands from all over the place. You mentioned uh, you mentioned Master Genie a minute ago. 
And, uh, I mean, someone who obviously very prominent in the punk scene and really a blast hearing on your podcast. He's been on a couple times. I always like hearing him on there. But I was going to ask him, yeah. huge involvement with Weasel through the years, whether it be being in the band, recording the band, like all of that, obviously had a huge involvement. Like, what is it about Mass that you think just meshed so well with, with Screeching Weasel that made you guys, like, work so much together? I, I think if you, for me and Ben, it was probably two different things. For Ben, uh, Mass is, I don't think it's, like, written down anywhere, but he is a genius. Like, he he has all the trappings of a genius, too, like... Like going too far and perfection shows up too often, but he gets things done. And Ben, I think, really liked that about him. He just gets shit done all the time. And if there was no one to do it, he would figure out how to do it. And that's still how he is to this day. What I got, I thought, was we relate on like to movies, and we just liked being together. So I, I just gained like a really close friend. With Mass, so that's kind of why he was loved by the band, and then it made sense for him to be in it. You know, once you we needed a really strong rhythm section, him and Lumley came together. Do you remember the first thing you worked on with Mass? We, um, well, we were just talking about that. He did, um, well, he did the Ramones album and uh, Wiggle. I always forget which one came first, but he he those were the first uh, where he's actually working with us as a producer engineer. I we had met him before that, like after after the first record release, because he somehow got the demo of the of our uh, untitled record, you know. So uh, he called us up to play his venue back then, which was called uh, Spud Zero. Oh, nice. So our yeah, our working relationship started very near the beginning of the band. But uh, his engineering took over, like, around Wiggle. Yeah, he, I mean, that's that's not that far in either. He, he I feel like, had, again, like, he is all over. Sometimes I forget how much until you guys are, like, talking about on the podcast and stuff. Like, I'm like, wow, he really did have a lot of involvement with a Weasel behind the scenes and, and obviously with the band itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, also, I had kind of a random, it's not totally random, it's kind of speaking of producers, but it's something I forgot about. On My Brain Hurts, uh, Al Sobrante, which uh, a lot of people might know is Green Day's first drummer, he's credited as an executive producer on that record. Like, what did what did he do on the record? Like, what was his involvement? How did, uh like, what did he do on that to be executive producer? He, uh, he, he charmed Ben Weasel. He wasn't, he wasn't even around for that record. He was nowhere near the place for that record. <laughs> okay. But if you notice, every single record, Ben sticks some sort of thing in there that is fictional. Oh, okay. Okay, so that's – okay. Yeah, so he wasn't even around, but we loved him. I I loved Alice Bronte from the first time I met him. Uh, he was just – he's so funny. Did you meet him in Green, like from Green Day just playing together? Is that how you guys met? Um, I can't remember what he was in then when I first met him, but the time we really started getting along was, yeah, when the Green Day, Mr. T Experience, and Screeching Weasel played uh, Larry Livermore's uh, town. And that's when we all sort of got together. Nice. nice. That was, I, I think, I looked it up the other day. There's like 80, 
I don't know, 89, eight, somewhere around there. Can't oh, know. early yeah. on. Here he is, yeah, yeah. I, uh, so he had he had absolutely nothing to do with the production. <laughs> I had forgotten all about it. Saw his name on it the other day and went, "Okay, I gotta ask." And I was thinking, I'm like, I don't really know what he did anything on this, but I gotta know why that's on the back of the cover. Yeah, I got my answer. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it? Was he an isocracy? I can I, I mix up a few of his his band's early stuff, but I knew he was in something before Green Day. That we when we met him, but I can't remember what. It's interesting. See, that's how- where me and Ben are different. Ben has more of a black and white memory; like he can remember things, and mine is all like creative flow. <laughs> I kind of, you know, I wasn't thinking about it before, but like, you know, really that association, like with the Bay Area and Lookout Records and everything. But like looking back, you guys were, you know, when you put it in context, it's a different time. It's pre-internet, you know, I'm sure scenes aren't as connected as they are now. Like, how did you get in contact with Lookout? How did all of that, like, happen where it was like, okay, like, like I'm sure you probably knew bands who were on Lookout, but again, it's not as easy as just sending an email out to do this kind of stuff, you know? No, that's, I, we we became like the, uh, I don't know. I mean, it felt it felt kind of magical at the time, and I, it's not just looking back. But there was something that in Weasel that appealed to that Berkeley intelligent punk crowd that, but also being kind of Midwest and mean and funny that really took. So when we went there, we immediately made relationships, whether it was pen pals or just phone calls. Um, and we were the first non-California band on Lookout, so. Is that wild at all? Like, I mean, it's interesting because you, you starting in the late eighties, like just music, music in general, the industry, how you release it, how, I mean, contacting people, booking things have like changed so much. I mean, does all of that just kind of blow your mind when you look back and see how it's changed probably a million times through the years too, not just like once. It's probably a constant changing thing. Like just oh, how, yeah, yeah. Music, how you're an artist, all of that. Yeah, I don't want to pull out the I, – I remember when old guy routine, but, there, you know, yeah, it was a lot different. I always talk about you had always had to have, like, a shit ton of quarters in your pockets for phones and, you know, a map, a road yeah, atlas. A map. Everyone had to read a map. That had to be a totally different time. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was, but – but, um, you know, with, with Weasel, you probably hear, I mean, the, the influence is all over punk and stuff like that. But I want to ask you, have you ever heard, like, Reaching Weasel influence or even just been told by someone they were influenced by you in a place that, like, you weren't expecting? You know what I mean? Like, have you, have you ever found that influence in somewhere that wasn't just, like, directly punk rock that was, like, you were kind of interested to see where that influence reached to? Um, I can't, you know, I can't draw a straight line to it but I I I turn on the radio and all I can hear is influences from my group of friends like whether it was Operation Ivy or Crim Shrine or Green Day any you know Pink you know worked with what Lint you know, from Rancid I mean it's everywhere I go to Japan and I you know my girlfriend doesn't know anything about the music and I'll say this and she's like doesn't really care but I go I have no idea who this is, but I bet I could link it back to my band in like two moves. <laughs> <You know? 
<laughs> it's like it's like the Kevin Bacon game, but it's it's never seven moves. It's always like one or two moves. <laughs> it always leads back to Screeching Weasel. Yeah, I once again I wouldn't say we. I think it was that that group of bands that came out of that period. Throw throw Jawbreaker in there, throw Mr. T in there, and you know definitely Operation Ivy. I and mean, no one was really doing what they were doing. Then, oh, you know, still one of the best. No Crip Shrine doesn't get credit for it, but no one was doing what those guys were doing. <laughs> I mean, those are all those all those people you just named off are people who have tried to be people have tried to replicate them a million times. But none yeah. of them, no one's been successful. No one's made yeah, any yeah. close to an Operation Ivy or a Crimp Shine. Yeah, and yeah, this affected the whole world. You know, it really has that scene really affected the whole world in ways that I don't think we will even understand ever understand. I talked to Larry about that. You know, it's just mind-boggling how how it affected everything. It it really is wild to see the reach of uh of influence. It's kind of yeah, neat, yeah. but it is it is very uh, wild. You know, as we kind. Yeah. As we kind of close up here, I did want to ask you, I mean, you know, you obviously travel the world quite a bit. And like you said, you were just in Japan not uh, long ago. Was, was like, traveling, is that something that you were interested in before, like, touring and music and theater? Or did that kind of develop from basically your job, you know what I mean, from having to move around and tour like that? Or was it something that you were always kind of into? I, I... Own up with my high school friend, and this is this gets to the point. But he was the one that made the choice to move into the city from the suburbs. But once that happened, that happened like in '89 or '90. I realized that I wasn't a, a Midwest suburban. Uh, I mean, I wasn't meant to be there anymore. Even when I go back and visit, I see people that I went to high school with all drinking at the bars, like you know, a block away from the high school. And I was like, I was meant to just go away right away and I and moving to the city really it was that I had already toured but it really solidified that in my soul that that I was not ever going to be just planted in one place um, but I always say I I want to have a home I just don't ever want to be there you just want a home base yeah. I'm, I'm kind of the same way I love traveling yeah. country in my car I just sleep yeah. in my car wherever I can yeah just go I used to joke I used to joke with friends where they thought I was joking in high school I'd say, I'm going to get a house before I get a car. And they were like, yeah, that's funny. And I did. I still have never owned a car. I, I have a house because, uh, you know, I, I, have that, I have that house, and then I can go away all the time. And I always have people that rent from me or friends that live there and stuff. And, that is amazing. So, I mean, really, yeah, like even if you didn't have, have art and music to, like, travel around for, it sounds like you would still be out there just seeing the world, basically. You'd still be out yeah, there. Yeah, I love it. I love it. No, I, I love that stuff too, and I love hearing because uh, I think some people take it; they just become. I'm sure you can get jaded from it, where it's like you're just going to a city or whatever. But like, like, do you? Well, that's the thing is when you tour in a band, it's a little bit more. It depends on what band, you know, and, and to what level you are. There are like bigger bands that probably have a harder time relating to different areas because they're just going to the hotel, going to the venue, and you don't really get to live it, but. As a punk band, you were sleeping on, I'm sleeping on Italians' floors, you know, or German, you know, my German friend's floor, and we're going to wherever he likes to have lunch, you know, or he's, you know, so uh, th that to me is never gets old. I mean, you start going, oh, that's exactly like this thing back home, and but that's that's part of it. 
it's part of becoming a like a, a global person instead of like your, your your little tribe is is discovering the differences and the similarities. Oh yeah, you got to get out of that comfort zone. You got to yeah, yeah. you got to go see everything. The world is the world is much bigger than the bar down the street from your old high school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And it affects your it affects how you treat other people in general, I think. I think you're better off for travel. I really not to not to go off on a tangent in that in that uh, way, but yeah, I think you're better off. You almost you almost gain something from going yeah. to people who you don't you wouldn't normally talk to or know. Yeah, and never- I I understand the economic situations. I understand people that like their home and don't need to go anywhere else. But I still feel at least once in their life they should have gone on a world tour or you know or just hitchhiked or something just get out of your comfort zone you know one more interesting people would be if they hitchhike you know you're interesting if you hitchhike you're probably an interesting person yeah you heard of that john waters did that a couple years ago right where he hitchhiked across the country i haven't read it yet but i want to to read that (laughs) that's fascinating to me i I can i never had the guts to hitchhike but we, uh, with Screech and Weasel, we would pick them up occasionally just to shake things up a bit. <laughs> I only had to do it once when I was lost in the Allegheny National Forest. I did have to hitchhike one time, but the guy, oh, yeah. the guy kind of forced me to because he said, uh, you look lost. I've driven by you three times, and I, you look like you're going the wrong <laughs> And I was. So that was. <laughs> but, John, you know, I mean, as we're closing up here, I want to I wanna kind of circle it back around the Jughead's basement because is what you're doing right now. Goals. I mean, do you feel like you have any more goals for the podcast, or is it mean just kind of keep on going and see where it takes you? I I do have goals. I really, I am taking this time. I really do want something that is at least a part time job. I really am trying to make the effort to make it a, a real thing. I don't know how fluid. I mean, how what do you call that? How financially beneficial. It, something like this could ever get, but I am taking it seriously, but I never do. I never take things seriously financially unless I'm committed to them artistically. Um, so that is my goal. And, but, but what I've learned is, and I've had a couple pretty famous people on, and I've learned that those don't grow your audience really. No, it's, it's, it's a interesting business game of slowly increasing the awareness of your, I mean, some things go viral automatically, but you can't control it. That's random. But it, what I'm learning is you have to slowly build it. Like, I have to bring on people that are a little bit more famous than that other guest I had. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to do that. And also balance it with what the hell I want to do. Like, like who's going to listen to a, a poet episode, like a poet episode? But that was important to me to do. I so like trying that. to balance the two. Yeah, thank you. I'm trying to balance the two of growing the audience, but also committing to doing things that i think are cool is there uh do you have any people that you're uh you know haven't been on yet that you want on is there like a list of people that you you kind of like dream list or maybe not even dream list just haven't gotten around to asking yet maybe yeah no there's a lot there's a lot i mean i can't even i mean you know there's i i blew my chance of getting keith morris from circle jerks on years ago and now i can't get him back on and i want i, I want him I want Fat Mike to say yes, and he keeps saying no. Um, but he'll send me all of the other people from Fat Records, so that's kind of cool. Right. <laughs> uh, You'll work your way up to him. You work your way yeah, up, yeah. Mike. He's the final level. Yeah, I, I keep on trying to get people from Jawbreaker, and they got busy. Uh, Aaron Cometbus, who's a good friend of mine, just doesn't do podcasts. Uh, 
he did my Crimshine one, which I'm like endlessly happy about, but I, I would love to just do a one-on-one with him. Just a nice long form conversation. Yeah. 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 So there's a, there's a lot, there's a huge list of people that I would love to have on. Yeah. Well, nice. Outside of, outside of the podcast, I mean, is there anything else we can expect from uh Jughead in 2022? I mean, what else should we be on the lookout for with you? Um, I'm, in discussions with uh, doing a like a full mitochondria record. Nice. Well, I say full, but it, we I purposely want to do a one-sided record and and call it one-sided. <laughs> and have it be all songs about from one perspective. So. I really like that. <laughs> a creative mind. You really are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Really. So it's gonna be a picture disc that's one-sided and it's called one-sided. So. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it, man. I mean, you you were staying busy with everything, and uh, I mean, I, I guess right now, like, where can people, if you want to, like, tell people, where can they find you, find the podcast? Like, yeah, that, that's the thing I'm I'm always pushing most. It's just uh, JugheadsBasementPodcast.com, so that's it. That's that's what it, but it's it's so easy to Google search me. Yeah. <laughs> you, it, it's not it's not really hard to be honest. No, no, I'm out there. So. <laughs> well, we're we're gonna play a bunch of songs from your catalog. I am gonna start it with a mitochondriac song, but I also want to ask you. I'm gonna kind of, in a way, put you on the spot. Yeah. Put you on the spot with this, but for one of the songs we're gonna play, it can be any of your bands. It's any it's anything you've ever worked on. Is there a song that like like kind of sticks out in your head? Maybe a multiple ones, but is there a song that you don't feel like? got enough attention that it deserved like is there a song you go this was a really good song and it just didn't get the same attention than maybe other songs that you oh i would say that's every single even in blackouts <laughs> song <laughs> i'll just play the whole first record <laughs> yeah. first uh record. no i mean a lot of people tell me uh the writer is a song that should have got a lot more exposure and i would say the other one is uh intention intention from the last romantico record those two i really thought if it was the right time period, would have gotten like airplane and stuff like that. Well, then we will uh, we will throw those in there, but yeah. we will start. We got to start with uh, something new. So uh, again, and John, really awesome. This is awesome talking. And we're gonna see some some music from Jughead right now, starting with the Mitochondriacs. Here is hate. Let's go. 
right here on the Power Court Hour podcast. That was Even in Blackouts with The Writer. Before that was Screeching Weasel with My Brain Hurts. And opening up that block of music was the latest from Jughead. There he was with the Mitochondriacs with their song Hate. I cannot thank John enough. That was not only, I mean, not only was that an insanely fun conversation, I mean, I I can't even start to like tell you what a big fan I am of uh, his music. I mean, I uh, I discovered, I mean, obviously, or not obviously, but probably like most people, Screeching Weasel being the uh, first one that I was aware of. And I discovered Screeching Weasel when I was uh, 16 back in 2009, which, I mean, really, they've been around for so long. That would have been like, I mean, they were around like 20 something years by the time, uh, I, I discovered them, but still like being a, being a 16 year old and finding screeching weasel, uh, it doesn't matter if it's 1989, 1999, 2009, like though, you know, like it's just, it's kind of perfect for that time. And I mean, what I was listening to and everything as well. And, uh, you know, cool kids was definitely the first one I heard. And, uh, I went and bought weasel mania and uh just fell in love i mean really like just i mean i i love i love uh all of that you know what i mean like it's just you just listen back to those old screeching weasel records and it's like they're really you can hear them like all over like you know jughead jughead's being modest and yes he's right you can hear like not just screeching weasel but green day mr t experience you know i would even say like the queers and stuff and uh you know you can hear those you can hear all of them in uh in pop punk and and different different places as well but like it's just undeniable that if you go listen to uh, screeching weasel and you listen to jughead's guitar playing it's like they're like all the all the pop punk bands that came after screeching weasel there's there's such a it's like 9 times out of 10 like the person playing guitar in that band is uh, influenced by by Jughead. And even if they don't know it directly, because the other thing, I mean, like if you listen to bands like Blink-182, I mean, fuck, go listen to Tom DeLonge, including on those early ones. I mean, those early Blink records. He is, he is like, you know, I mean, up there up there with Brett of Bad Religion, like I would, I would say another huge one is uh, Jughead. You can hear in Tom's playing. And I mean, even if you have people who somehow don't know Screeching Weasel but know Blink and are influenced by them, I mean, you may may or may not know it, but like you are indirectly influenced by Jughead, you know. I uh so yeah, really like total honor. Like not only just honor, but like what a nice guy. Like legitimately, like the second I started talking to him, could not have been nicer, could not have been friendlier. I mean, it uh you know, going into like I was pretty nervous because like not not that he didn't seem like he was very nice. Like listening to his podcast, he seems like a very nice down to earth guy. But still, it's Jughead. Like it is John fucking Jughead Pearson of Screeching Weasel, of even in blackouts, of the mopes. Like, I mean, punk rock royalty by all means. So uh, you know, for him for him to be as cool as uh, he is and is nice and down to earth. I mean, what a what a great time just talking to him. And I will say I do apologize for the uh, audio quality on there. I mean, I I think it was I think it was bearable. I don't think it was anything ungodly, but uh I know it wasn't like the greatest quality. We did a Skype call and I don't know if it was on my end or his end, but I think the I think the uh connection was just not great. I mean, that's all I can figure out. I I've, I've honestly only I've only used Skype like twice for interviews. But like both times they'd not come out like the audio, the audio quality was not what I was expecting because I'm, I'm using a, a sure SM seven B on that, uh, on that interview. Not right. I'm not right now, but I was during that interview when I was talking to him through Skype and I just, I don't, I don't know, I guess enough about Skype or I don't know 
if I'm fucking something up, but like it definitely wasn't the, uh, you know, including on my end, I actually thought he sounded better than I did, but I thought on my end, I'm like, that sure doesn't sound like, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like it's coming out of this mic, that, that quality, but, uh, you know, it really doesn't, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think that conversation, no matter the quality was really, really good. And I think if you're a, if you're a Jughead fan, hopefully you grab something out of there. And uh, I cannot say enough. Go listen to Jughead's Basement because look at and I and I don't say this like saying it like oh I'm I'm so good at podcasting or broadcasting or anything like that. By no means do I mean that when I say this. But there are so many like musicians today that have podcasts. Like they just like like every motherfucker who's in a band has a podcast. And yes, that's beautiful. That's nice. But like so many of them are so bad at it and it's not like I mean and I was being entirely genuine with uh with John when I told him that but it's like how long can you really listen to someone no matter like you might be a fan of their music but I mean how long can you listen to them just fucking like drivel on and on if it's not good you know what I mean like so to be able to carry a conversation and like and also do the research and stuff because there's a lot of like musicians who seem to have podcasts who like have their friends on or something, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that, but like do zero prep or like even treat it like it's an interview or like that you'll get anything out of it. Like it's, and it's like a conversation, but like the most mundane conversation, like it's like water cooler fucking talk. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, so I, uh, I just got to give more credit to Jughead. Really? All I'm, all I'm doing is by, uh, by shitting on all these other ones. I'm just saying like John's is amazing like his interview skills like he's legitimately good at interviewing like I mean the fact that he went in talking to Vinny from Lesson Jake and uh which also insane that they never crossed paths in all those years like never because really Lesson Jake I think if you in the grand scheme of things even though Lesson Jake seemed like at least to me they they haven't been around as long as Screeching Weasel Screeching Weasel only started I think like five years or so before uh before less than Jake. So it was like 92 for less than Jake. And I think weasel was like 88, 89, but, um, you know, him going in there with nothing planned. And then if you go listen to that interview, it's amazing. Like, so it's not easy to go in. I mean, even this, like, look at, I, I love Jughead's music, but I didn't go into this without prepping. Like, it's insane to me that he, he, uh, went in like that, but that really does. That shows like, that's the merits of, of him as an interviewer. Like, so, I mean, total credit to him like it's it's not you go in listening to it because it's like oh it's Jughead but it's like you will you will listen to like all the episodes because they're just really really good and uh he's a very interesting guy and he he is like he he gets these he gets these things out of out of guests like they'll start talking about things you would never think about you know like like hearing hearing like him and Dan Vapid just talk about like just far, farthest away from like you know talking about like weasel and stuff like that like just really like philosophical things books and authors that they've read and just like getting into like really some deep stuff too like it's really amazing like it's it's honestly I can't say enough good stuff so go check that out I love that he's uh, doing it regularly like I know like I said he's been doing it like on and off throughout the years and like I for years I've watched some of his like solo videos and stuff on YouTube and then uh more recently when Ryan from 500 miles to Memphis shout out to him who was on this show and uh, I saw he was on Jughead's basement I'm like oh my god like I didn't even know Jughead was like doing interviews like I, mean, I knew he I knew he did some like stuff on his YouTube page but I guess I didn't realize he was doing it like almost weekly and more regularly so uh, I was stoked after that after listening to Ryan's episode which you should definitely go check out 
um, I started going through the rest of his catalog and some really, really good stuff on there. So uh, go check those out. Go grab that Mitochondriax album. And uh, there are, there's like two other EPs out there as well. And they're on their Bandcamp page. Uh, go grab those. Uh, proceeds do go. I can't remember where they go to, but uh, like John said, they are donating proceeds when you go buy that. So go grab, uh, go grab that on Bandcamp. Not only will you get some great music, but uh, you'll be helping out a great cause, whatever that is. If I if I knew it off the top of my head, I would tell you, but I don't. But I'm sure it's great, and uh, I'll make sure there's links at the uh, in the podcast notes to go check all that out. But uh, yeah, that is going to be this week's episode. Again, I mean, John fucking Jughead Pearson, amazing, like really, like like amazing. I. Uh, I, I love I love uh, everything he's done, and I, I really this mitochondriacs like I mean you just heard that one song, but like there is a legit like early weasel vibe on this, which I'm all about, and and you can hear it a lot in the guitar work because of uh you know Jughead, but I I'm really enjoying it. I'm excited to hear more from him, and there's no way this this is his last time on the show. I I refuse I refuse that he will he will be back because that was too good not to. And uh, I hope you enjoyed as much as I did it, because I really, like, even... I hate listening back to interviews when I got to edit them. And uh, not to say that I don't enjoy the conversation and the interview and everything, but it's, like, it's just kind of weird listening back. Kind of kind of like what me and Jughead were talking about, where he can remove himself from something when he's done and, like, listen to it, you know, as, like, a kind of more like a listener or whatever. Um, I don't think I have that so much. I, uh, maybe once the podcast totally done, once it's like fully produced and out, I can maybe not that I really listen to this podcast, but you know, I, uh, I can maybe listen to a little bit of it, but like editing interviews and stuff, I don't love listening to myself, but on this one, not that I like listening to myself, but like listening back to the conversation, I'm like, Oh my God, like this was a good, like this was a really good conversation. Like I didn't like not just because I was talking to him, but like and again, total credit to him. I'm not saying this. I'm not patting my own back. It was a great fucking conversation because it was Jughead, you know, and also probably why his podcast is so good because it doesn't matter the guest, you know. He he is just a good host. So uh, yeah, go check out everything he is doing, and uh, if you want to go check out everything I'm doing at Power Chord Hour on a Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Go, uh, if you would subscribe to our YouTube page and, uh, I don't feel like I plugged that enough. So if you're not, if maybe you're listening to this on YouTube, uh, if you are hell yeah, if you're not go subscribe to our YouTube page, if you would, it'd be really cool. And, uh, if you've not heard the radio show is now it's been this way for a couple weeks now, but we're now four hours every, uh, Friday night on 107.9 WRFA eight to midnight very, very rad. 8 p.m. was our first time slot back in 2016. And then in uh, 2018, we moved on over to 10 o'clock. And now we just own all of it. We, we own all that uh, all that audio real estate. Uh, you know, everyone, everyone's been talking about, like, I don't know really what the hell you call it, but, like, basically virtual reality and, and like, you know, just, just weird, weird shit in uh in digi- in the digital universe and shit like that and uh I own I own like audio real estate in the in the radio universe so uh you know yeah 4 hours every every uh Friday night really really fun love doing it playing a bunch of music uh this interview will be up on uh on the radio show this Friday night and I'm going to play a shit ton of uh you know just a bunch of John's bands a bunch of other stuff I mean really 
really if you're in it, it's going to be both like if you're if you're into john's music i'm gonna play a ton of that and all the other bands i'm going to play are kind of within that vein and i'm sure i'll play like bands who we talked about tonight i'm sure i'll throw some violent femmes on there and some mr t experience and uh and who knows you'll have to tune in to hear the rest of it but uh yeah every friday night eight to midnight on 107.9 wrfa in jamestown new york you can also listen online at wrfa lp.com you can stream the radio station there and uh yeah if you would also for the podcast rate review and subscribe wherever you listen to these uh that would be greatly appreciated that would really really help out and i would appreciate that a lot and power cord hour at gmail.com you got to hit me up for anything hit me up there and uh yeah i guess that is going to be everything so for this week's power cord hour podcast i'm anthony merchant thank you so much for listening